Hey everyone, this is Taylor Halverson from Book of Mormon Central. We've had a lot of requests to add our weekly Come Follow Me videos with myself and Tyler Griffin to our podcast. We are very excited to do this. However, just know that we use a lot of visuals in our videos. So if you ever want to see the visuals, check out Book of Mormon Central on YouTube. We hope you enjoy. I'm Taylor. And I'm Tyler. This is Book of Mormon Central's Come Follow Me Insights. Today, Genesis chapters 24 through 27. So today, with with these particular chapters, there there are always always a million different angles you can take on a block of scripture and on a historical story or or some teaching. What we want to show today, as we go through this story, is uh, when we when we cover Isaac's story, is Rebecca and her faithfulness and the servant who who helps facilitate this wedding. These two in, in particular, Rebecca and the servant of Abraham, I love these two and I'm inspired by, by what they accomplish as this story unfolds, as you're going to see. And what's interesting, if you look at Genesis 24, it's one of the longest chapters that we actually have in Genesis and it really spends a lot of time on this deep detail about the story of how the servant is so desirous to see the hand of God in his life to bless and prosper's way to find a wife for Isaac. And so some interesting lessons we can, we can tease out of this. And it's also interesting how the Bible records this. And related to this is the way the Bible actually records stories is we often think that there's like only one family on the stage of humanity at this point. And there are literally millions of people living throughout the Middle East and Egypt, and God is just really super focused, laser focused on just a small, group of people. And what we'll see here in this episode, one of the things I take away is how God will prosper those who are in his covenant relationship. This is exactly what the servant is doing is, God, show me that you will prosper my way. And lots of other cool things to talk about today. So as you open up chapter 24, you get this scenario in verse 1 where it says, and Abraham was old and well stricken in age or advanced in age. So he's he's getting well along in, in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. So now he he has this concern. His son Isaac, we learn later on in the next chapter, is 40 years old. Now again, the number 40, it could be literal, absolutely exactly 40 years old, or it could mean yeah, he's he's many years old as well. He's he probably needs to be um, getting married in order to carry on this Abrahamic promise that that God has given him for posterity, and so that's where he calls his most trusted servant. So the story now uh, continues in verse two. Abraham said unto his eldest servant of his house. Now I need to just pause here and point out we don't even know this guy's name. He is one of the most important characters in this entire story, and quite frankly, for anyone who who is a Jew today or anyone who is adopted into one of the tribes of Israel through baptism in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints today, we all collectively owe a huge debt of gratitude to this guy, and we don't even know his name because the, the scriptures only tell us he is the eldest servant 
of Abraham's house that ruled over all that he had. So Abraham has his servant make a binding oath with him. The way it describes it in the King James Version here is, put, I pray thee, thy hand under my thigh. Joseph Smith changes the word thigh to hand. It's in their context, in their culture, in their setting, it is, it is a powerful binding oath. That's how important it is to Abraham that we get this decision right for my son. It's interesting, he uses this word, verse 3, swear. Now, in our language today, we think about swearing are bad words you never want to say. And anciently, the word swear is more about you declaring truth and a commitment to live up to truthful statements. And this word swear, we actually find it in other words in our language. Have you ever answered somebody? So it turns out the word answer literally means to swear in response or swear back to somebody, not that you're mad or saying bad things, but if Tyler says something to me, I want to respond truthfully and committed to what I'm saying, so I and swear, and then he might and swear back. So anciently, a conversation was full of committed truth speaking, and the underlying word for all that is to swear, meaning you swear that something is true and accurate and faithful and you will live up to what you're talking about. It's beautiful. So, so the wording there, verse 3, and I will make thee swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that thou shalt not take a wife unto my son of the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. So it's, it's that important to Abraham. Now, did you notice God has made all of these promises to Abraham in the past, especially regarding posterity, and yet Abraham isn't sitting back as a victim, as an object waiting to be acted upon. He's using his agency, he's doing the best he can to make sure that God's prophecies and promises get fulfilled. He's not, he's not watching, waiting for God to do all of the, the fulfilling of those promises. That's a, that's a powerful concept for us, especially those of you who have uh, particular blessings in your, in your patriarchal blessing or you've been promised things um, in other blessings or in other settings where, where you know you've received things from the Lord instead of sitting back and waiting. Now, I have to say there are times when that's exactly what you have to do is be still and see the salvation of God or, or see him do his work. So that, that does happen many times. But in this case, as in many other cases, we need to be a little more proactive and seek the Lord early and often to fulfill those promises and those blessings that have been, have been granted to us. Perhaps Nephi's phrase, it is by grace that we are saved after all we can do, is God put us on this earth to use our time and talents and our agency to bring about good, and I think this is what Abraham's doing. Is like, I'm going to use my agency to try to bring about good in the world. That's right. So in verse 10, this unnamed servant, he leaves with, with ten camels. That's a, that's a big caravan group for, for this mission. Could, could I use an example today? Can you imagine you went on a family trip and brought like ten support vehicles and you owned them all? It's, yeah. it's, I don't know, I don't know a lot of people who own ten vehicles. So Abraham is a man of substance at this point. Absolutely. So the, the uh, servant makes this journey with some of the helpers, and by the way, we don't even 
hardly mentioned those additional helpers, and each one of them has a story that someday we'll, we'll probably get to learn, and those stories will be beautiful as well. So we get up to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor, and I want you to notice something in a pattern here with this particular servant. Look at verse 12, and he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, I pray thee, send me good speed this day, and show kindness unto my master Abraham. There's a lot in those three lines right there, yeah. or four lines right there. This, the meekness, the humility, the worshipfulness of this servant, the genuine uh, pleading in his words that you can just feel, and it's not for himself. It's he's pleading to God in behalf of his, his master Abraham, uh, which, by the way, tells you something about Abraham. To have a servant be that devoted tells you about the way that Abraham has probably been treating this servant for not just a few days or weeks, but probably for years. This is his eldest servant, and, and that relationship of trust has been built to the point where this servant, he's going to do anything he can to help Abraham. I, I like that. There's covenantal language here. The, the, the phrase kindness is actually a technical covenantal term that the servant is invoking to the Lord. The Lord has made these covenants to Abraham, and fulfilling the covenant is an act of kindness. The word kindness literally means uh, to fulfill the covenant. So the servant, who's part of Abraham's household, knows that God has made these commitments to Abraham and has committed to do certain things for Abraham. And so the servant very humbly is calling upon the Lord to remember his covenants that God is obligated to do things for Abraham. Therefore, it's a kindness, meaning the kindness is the symbol that the covenant is being fulfilled. Wonderful. So, after a journey of, of probably hundreds of miles, we arrive here at Nahor, and those camels and those, those servants who have made that journey, they're weary, they're tired. Verse 14, the servant says, Let it come to pass that the damsel to whom I shall say, Let down thy pitcher, I pray thee, that I may drink, and she shall say, Drink, and I will give thy camels drink also. Let the same be she that thou hast appointed for thy servant Isaac, and thereby shall I know that thou hast showed kindness unto my master. It's fascinating because this is one of the few places in Scripture, there aren't very many of these, where somebody can set the terms of an agreement and actually have it work out perfectly, that usually it's God who writes the terms of the agreement and gives them to, to us as human beings. That, to me, I, I don't know all the reasons, but to me, the, that covenant is so important, and this servant is so faithful and so selfless. He, he, he's not asking this for himself. It's for Abraham and Isaac, and by default, for that covenant that God has made to Abraham and will eventually make here with Isaac, reestablish with Isaac, that God actually fulfills this, this agreement exactly the way the servant has laid it out. In fact, the irony is, verse 15, and it came to pass before he had done speaking, behold, Rebekah came out 
He's not, he's not even finished with his prayer, and here comes Rebekah. And she was born to Bethuel, son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, with her pitcher upon her shoulder. Now, are any of you confused about the family genealogy pedigree chart yet? Uh, let's, let's diagram this for a minute, because I, for some of you, I imagine you, like me, are, are visual learners, and it's easier when you can see it than just reading all these names on a page. It, it kind of gets lost in the shuffle. So let's just show you the, the family tree of Terah. So Terah has three sons. You have Abraham, then we have Haran. Haran seems to be the older of the, the brothers, and Nahor. Now, remember, Haran has two children. He has the, the son named Lot, and we remember Lot's wife and his two daughters, that story, so you can see the relationship here, and Milcah. So Nahor marries Milcah, his niece, and we find out um, in that previous lesson that Sarah is also Terah's daughter, but from a different mother than Abraham, and these two are going to get married. Now watch, watch as this unfolds. So Milcah and Nahor have a son by the name of Bethuel. So Bethuel is the father of two children that are significant in this story. One of them is Rebekah, and the other is Laban. Are you confused yet? Stick with us. We'll see if we can make it even more confusing. So remember, Sarah and Abraham have now had this son named Isaac. Who is Isaac going to marry? He's going to marry his cousin in this family, Rebekah. You can see this relationship, how it comes through both Abraham and Sarah over to Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, who is the son of Milcah and Nahor. Now, these two are going to have two sons named Esau and Jacob, whose name is going to be changed to Israel. Who does Jacob marry? He's going to marry Laban's two daughters, Leah and Rachel. And then from there we get the 12 tribes of Israel that we'll talk about next time. This is, this is a big, this is a lot of ink on the board to set the stage so you can kind of make better sense of where these, these connections are, are coming from. So Rebecca tells him in verse 15 who she is, at which point the servant is thinking, perfect, she is exactly who I came to find, and he gives her this, uh, this ring, this golden earring, the Hebrew word there is ring, and notice what happens after that initial interchange, verse 26, 
and the man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of my master Abraham, who hath not left destitute my master of his mercy and his truth. I being in the way, the Lord led me to the house of my master's brethren. Or I being on, on the Lord's path. Lord's path his, or on, on his errand. Covenant errand here. I wanted to point this out because sometimes sometimes you and I as human beings, as mortals, we have this tendency of, oh no, I have this, I have this problem to solve or this issue to resolve, and, and we turn to the Lord pleading for help. And then often, not all the time, but often when that help comes or when the solution starts to unfold, we're like, oh, good, I can rest now. And often our tendency as mortals, as humans, is to not turn back to God and acknowledge his goodness. I love this servant because he's, he's just gotten underway with a potential solution, and what is his first reaction? He turns to God in verse 26, and he worshiped the Lord. I like that. And by the way, that's not going to go away. You saw him turn to God at the beginning of this interchange. You see him now turn to the Lord and worship him, and at every phase you're going to see this servant deferring back to God and giving glory and credit and, and petitions to God at every phase. I like that. I want to be more like this. It's a, it's a Christ-like attribute to take time for the Lord. President Nelson has asked us, he's pled with us to make time for the Lord every day. Uh, brothers and sisters, you generally walk the direction you're facing. You, you generally move wherever you're looking, and what an amazing thing to carve out a little more time each day to look heavenward, to then uh, acknowledge and worship God a little more this week than maybe we did last week. I'm also impressed with Rebecca here. Oh, yeah. This 10 camels, they can drink up to 10 gallons each. That's 100, possibly 100 gallons running back and forth. So she's here, she doesn't even know the stranger, and yet she takes the time to serve somebody in need. Just a great example. It's beautiful. In fact, if you look, if you look back in verse 18 through 20, the, the words that we get here in the, the King James Version, and she said, so he, he asked, Can you, will you give me a drink? Because that was the condition that he had laid out, right? Verse 18, and she said, drink, my lord, and she hasted and let down her pitcher upon her hand and gave him drink. Uh, she hasted, she, she hurried, she didn't delay, and when she had done giving him drink, she said, I will draw water for thy camels also until they have done drinking. And she hasted and emptied her pitcher into the trough and ran again unto the well to draw water and drew for all his camels. And as Taylor pointed out, there were ten of them. It could be a hundred trips back and forth. This is, and she hasted. She's running uh, to, to meet that need. Uh, I love that. I love that, that principle. So now we go into the house of her father, Bethuel, and her brother Laban is there, and he's excited to see this, this servant from his cousin and his relative, and they 
They retell the entire story here of what's happened, the servant does, catches everybody up to speed, and notice as you, you skip over to verse 56, he said unto them, Hinder me not, seeing the Lord hath prospered my way, send me away that I may go to my master. Because they want to keep him there for days on end. Let's just let's have this long multi-week party to celebrate. And he's like, I'm on an errand of the Lord. And on the errand of Abraham. And what is Abraham doing back in Canaan right now? He's concerned for his son. And this servant is saying, I I, I can't see it would be way more pleasurable, way more enjoyable for me to not turn right around and leave again on a, on a multi-day journey with these camels. It, w- it would be way better for me to stay here. I love the servant's perspective of, I'm not doing what's best for me. I'm not in this for me. I'm in it for the Lord and I'm in it for my, my master, Abraham, and his son, Isaac. So, please, let, let us go. And they say, well, we're not going to force Rebecca to leave. We'll ask her. What do you want to do? And by the way, if you're Rebecca, it would be significantly easier to, to give it some time, let me get stuff ready, let me say goodbye to all of my friends and, and other uh, acquaintances. Um, I love what she says in verse 58. They called Rebecca and said unto her, Wilt thou go with this man? And she said, I will go. Those are three words that are so significant in, in a gospel context. That phrase that Jehovah used in the premortal council, that idea of there's a, there's a difficult errand to, to be run, a, a mission to be fulfilled that only I can fulfill, here am I, send me. It's, it's another way of saying what she said here, I will go, or like Nephi in the Book of Mormon, I will go and do the things which the Lord hath, has commanded. I love that, and I love her faithfulness and her willingness to set aside her own uh, pleasures or comforts or ease of life to get on that camel and go hundreds of miles away from her nuclear family trusting in the Lord 100%, putting, putting all of her, her faith and trust that he's going to guide her in the right direction. The, the blessing that they give her upon leaving, just so beautiful. Yeah, this blessing, verse 60, and by the way, you who, who might be watching this or studying this particular chapter this week, you are part of the fulfillment of this particular blessing given to Rebekah by Bethuel and Laban. Verse 60 says, And they blessed Rebekah and said unto her, Thou art our sister, be thou the mother of thousands of millions, and let thy seed possess the gate of those which hate them. Ah, that's profound. You're going to be the mother of thousands of millions. That's a lot of people. It's billions. Yeah. And uh, that is literally fulfilled in our day. So they rose, her and her damsels, and they rode upon the camels, and they followed the man and the servant 
took Rebecca and went his way. So we come on this journey. They come down. Uh, Isaac sees her and marries her, and we find out in the next chapter, um, in chapter 25, verse 20, that Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebecca to wife. So thus begins this new, new marriage, and the rest of our story today is what's happening with this particular nuclear family. At the beginning of this chapter 25, uh, Abraham marries Keturah and has these additional children, Zimran, Jokshan, Midan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. And just as a reminder that uh, the Bible was written partly as a family history, and so there's this deep focus on this family, and they care a lot about genealogy. So there are portions of the Bible that to us read like, well, they are genealogical lists, and we just have to remember that it was important for these people to preserve the memory and the names of those who were within their family. Okay, so now you have Abraham with one son through uh, Hagar, Ishmael, another son through his first wife, Sarah, that's Isaac, and then six sons from Keturah, so eight sons total. Notice verse 5, and Abraham gave all that he had unto Isaac, and then we get the death of Abraham. He's 175 years old when he dies, and the end of verse 8 says that he was gathered to his people and buried in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, where his wife, Sarah, had been buried. Uh, now you get the genealogy of Ishmael, the twelve tribes of Ishmael, uh, starting in verse 13 through 17, and that's a significant group that is going to have impact on the world down to, down to the very end, just like the twelve tribes of Israel through Isaac's line um, is going to have major impact. Now we pick up the story specifically with Isaac and Rebekah starting in verse 20. Uh, look at verse 21. Isaac entreated the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord was entreated of him, and Rebekah his wife conceived. Now, let me just pause here for a moment. You'll notice verse 21 tells you she's barren, and so we have a problem, that's the problem, and Isaac turns to God for the solution, and it tells us God did entreat him and his wife conceived, and we think, great, that's wonderful, problem was solved, isn't that easy? Just turn to the Lord, he'll fix all your problems, and it feels very, very quick. Mm -hmm. Look down at verse 26. After that came his brother out, and his hand took hold on Esau's hill, and his name was called Jacob, and Isaac was threescore years old when she bare him. Now we pause and do a little bit of math here and say three score, one score is 20 years, so three score is 60 years. We know that Isaac was 40 years old when he and Rebecca got married and want to have seed, want to have posterity to fulfill all of these promises, and when he's 60, then the two twins are finally born. 
brothers and sisters, the barrenness lasted for 20 years, and yet we covered it in one sentence. What we don't get is the story of 20 very long years that are inserted in there. It's the part of the story the Bible doesn't tell us. A year is a long time. Multiple days, weeks, months of pleading with God for this blessing, and it's not given. Going to bed at night, watering their pillow with their tears, saying, what, what's wrong? Is it, is it our faithfulness? Is it, is it something I'm, I'm not doing that I should be? Am I doing something wrong? It's this probably self-doubt, and yet they stay focused on the Lord and his answer is given in his timing. I love, I love the idea, the concept that Elder Neal A. Maxwell taught when he said, isn't it ironic that you and I who wear wristwatches and we would add have calendars on our walls, that we try to counsel he who governs cosmic clocks on matters of timing, and he goes on to say in, a, in a, another setting, it's often easier to say, Lord, thy will be done, than it is to say, Lord, thy timing be done. So if there's a blessing you've sought, if there's a struggle you've faced, a wrestle you're engaged with that just doesn't seem to go away, I think if Isaac and Rebecca, especially Rebecca, were here today, I think she might just give us some counsel that's really simple. I think her counsel might be, you have to trust God. You have to trust that he knows what he's doing when it comes to timing. Uh, he knows how to give the gifts that he has promised to you and, more importantly, when and how to give those gifts. So now look at verse 22. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it be so, why am I thus? And she went to inquire of the Lord. She's feeling an unusual amount of, of struggle in her womb, and she doesn't understand it. She, she's trying to figure out what's going on. So what does she do? She goes to the Lord. I like that pattern. Verse 23, notice what Rebecca is going to know before these two boys are even born. The Lord said unto her, Two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels, and the one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. Rebecca knew that before they were even born, the, because the Lord told her that that's how it was going to be. That will come into play in the rest of this story today as the, the conflict between Esau and Jacob plays out what Rebecca, their mother, knew long before they were even born. Verse 24, And when her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. So verse 25, And the first came out red, all over like an hairy garment, and they called his name Esau. And later he becomes the father of the Edomites, and the word Edom means red. 
And it's related to the Hebrew word for blood, which is dam. So there's this, this wordplay going on. And again, we've talked about how the names are the lesson, and this also shows up in the name of Jacob. Yes. So these boys grow up, and they're very different from each other. Verse 27, the boys grew, and Esau was a cunning hunter, a man of the field, and Jacob was a plain man dwelling in tents. So you'll notice in verse 28 that it, it tells us that Isaac loved Esau because he did eat of his venison, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Now, I, I don't think that what this is intending to say is that Rebekah doesn't love Esau and Isaac doesn't love Jacob. I think the intent here is to show that there's just a natural uh, propensity to appreciate the things that Esau does if you're Isaac and vice versa for Rebekah. And so Jacob in verse 29 sawed pottage and Esau came from the field and he was faint. He's been out, it's been a long hunt and he's struggling and he tells, he tells him, I, I've got to have some of that food, feed me. Um, and notice verse 30 tells you exactly what Taylor had said, his name was called Edom. So he's, he's the progenitor of all the Edomites later on. Now, there are some traditions, and we don't know if these are correct, that actually Esau had been um, running from people who were trying to kill him, and that Esau actually was trying to protect the birthright and therefore sold it to Jacob to keep the family because he thought he was going to be a dead man because there was a whole group of people trying to find and kill him. And whether or not that's true, it's just interesting because sometimes we look at Esau like, this guy gave away his birthright for some red pottage, and we don't have all the details. Like, maybe he just really didn't care, or maybe there was something going on that he was trying to protect the birthright in the family. And we'll get into this a bit more, but I love Esau because uh, some things happen in the story that don't work out in his favor, and yet we see that he ends up forgiving his mother, his brother, even though he, he lost access to some things that he thought should be his. Yeah. So he, he tells Jacob in verse 32, Behold, I am at the point to die, and what profit shall this birthright do to me? So Jacob asked him to swear that he would sell the birthright, and he swore, and he gave him the, pot, the pottage of lentils in verse 34. I'm not really into lentils, so... <laughs> if you're dying, you're probably going to be into lentils. Maybe, maybe some steak and potatoes. Yeah. So now you get to chapter 26 where there's once again a famine in the land, so Isaac and Rebekah leave and go down to where the Philistines live, and here we meet Abimelech. Again. You remember that guy? Now, before we get into that story, we, we can't skip over verse 3 and 4 because this is where God reestablishes the covenant made with Abraham. Now it's made fresh and new with Isaac in verse 3 and 4, Sojourn in this land, and I will be with thee, and will bless thee. For unto thee and unto thy seed I will give all these countries, and I will perform the oath which I swear unto Abraham thy father, and I will make thy seed to multiply as the stars of heaven, and will give unto thy seed all these countries, and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. You're going to bless everybody. Uh, you're going to be the, the source of spreading this covenant through you and your seed. It's beautiful. 
Look at verse 5. Because that Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. It's the idea of taking wherever you are and adding upon it and getting closer and closer and closer to becoming more like, like God, and we've got all these patterns in Scripture of people who have walked this path and kept those covenants, and quite frankly, this is great for Isaac, but what's even better is when we own these verses and say, wait a minute, how can I more fully uh, create this connection, this faithful covenant loyalty to God in my own life? Because his promises are sure, they, they haven't changed. It's us who changes, but how can we deepen and strengthen that connection with God? That's, to me, that's the essence of, of what, what we should be taking away from verse 3, 4, and 5. So now we come in and you get that story of, of Isaac and Rebekah and he t tells Abimelech, she's my sister. Why these stories are told, one of the reasons seems to be it's to signal to the reader of how and why God found a way to get material blessings into the hands of his chosen servants. And, right, you get the, the reinitiation of the covenant, God makes all his promises, and then in this chapter you have a series of explanations of the way that God prospered Isaac. You have, he got a, he planted seed and got a hundredfold. Um, he digs all these wells and they get water. So it's trying to set up that there's this cause and effect, that God is the cause of bringing good things about, and the effect is, through these stories that, are, that, that deliver on these promises, that God will fulfill his promises to his faithful servants. servants. So, we don't have to get caught up in like the detail of the fact that there's three stories repeated here in Genesis about the wife-sister motif, but that is actually used in the story of the, the biblical narrative to help us understand how God blesses his people. Beautiful. So, you like he said, planting the seeds and the multiplying, the, the digging of the wells. By the way, if, if somebody asks you, what, what is the summation of, of chapter 26, you can say, well, 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 <laughs> I, I will tell you, because here you get three wells, Esek, Sitna, and Rehoboth, and it gives you the idiomatic expression translation in the footnote of all of those, strife, opposition, broad open places, where it's the, the bread and the water that are necessary to sustain life and God is multiplying these things for Isaac, even though it's in the face of great opposition and in confrontation, even. This is important because I did say that God is trying to bless Isaac and show that he will fulfill these covenantal promises, and yet it's not without conflict and strife. If we went and talked to Isaac, like, hey, how was it having to go dig those wells through the limestone and then have people stop them up or fight you over them? He's like, actually, it was really terrible. There were times I wondered if God was really in charge and was really going to follow through, but I decided, because I learned from my father that you can always trust God. You can trust the God of Abraham. So I trusted God, and I decided I was going to treat people properly, and things worked out. But the, the Bible, the way it reads here sometimes, we kind of pass over a lot of the details of, like, the personal challenges and suffering and, like, out sweating in the hot sun and going to bed a little stressed out, like, is this going to work? And we get these stories like, oh, Isaac, Abraham, Jacob, they all had easy lives, and I don't think they did. Anything but. Look at verse 24 and 25 to, to tag on to what Taylor's saying here. 
the Lord appeared unto him that same night and said, I am the God of Abraham thy father. Fear not, for I am with thee and will bless thee and multiply thy seed for my servant Abraham's sake. And he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent. And there Isaac's servant digged a well. They, they keep digging wells wherever they are. Look at verse 28. They said, We saw certainly that the Lord was with thee, and we said, Let there now be an oath betwixt us. So these Philistines, the, the people that he's living among, they recognize this guy, he, he's different. He's, he's got divine aid helping him, so let's, let's stop the, the striving and the, the warring and let's, let's make an oath between us, a peace treaty. And so that's what happens here. Have a feast and, and make a, a peace treaty here. Yeah, it's interesting. The word uh, Be'er Sheva literally means um, the well of the oath or the well of seven. Seven can also mean oath. So the, that is still the name today. There's a Be'er Sheva in Israel and it's named after it's, it's this location and it's named for the covenant that these people created to live in peace with one another. So in contrast to Isaac's story and getting that birthright, uh, all those promises of Abraham given to him, look at verse 34, and Esau was forty years old when he took to wife Judith, the daughter of Biri, the Hittite, and Beshemoth, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite. So Esau has now married two Canaanite women, the, these two Hittites which were of a grief of mind unto Isaac and to Rebekah. So Esau, keep in mind, this is a, this is coming to us from the Hebrew scriptures, the Hebrew Bible, they're telling the story of their ancestors and Esau, being the firstborn, has promised, he's sworn that he would sell his birthright to Jacob, now he breaks his parents' heart by marrying outside of the family, outside of the covenant, and so they're setting the stage here for what's going to happen in chapter 27. Uh, we begin verse 1 with Isaac being old, his eyes were dim, so he could not see, so he's, he's gone blind, and so he calls his oldest son Esau, and he says, my son, and he responds, behold, here am I, and he said, behold now, I am old and I know not the day of my death. So he tells him, go, get me some meat. You, you know I love your food and your hunting, so prepare me some, some yummy venison, come in and I will give you your blessing. Now what we don't know here from the scriptural account is, has there been a conversation between Rebecca and Isaac about what Rebekah had already been told by God? If there was a conversation, we don't have it in the Bible. Rebekah knows some things. So she basically gives Jacob instructions about how he can get the blessing. Now, on the face of it, if you read this story, it sounds like there's a lot of deception going on. And we have to step back for a minute and say there's a couple things going on. First of all, Jacob's name in, in Hebrew means the supplanter. So there's something about his original name that actually plays into how the story is remembered in subsequent generations and then put into the Bible. 
Later you'll find that his name is changed to Israel because he wrestles with God, which is significant. So I think there's a change of heart for Jacob that I think he realizes that maybe the approach for getting the blessing may have been problematic and that he turns himself over to God and wrestles with him. But there's also something else going on. There seems to be a sense in ancient Israelite society that the, the Israelites culturally felt that when there's an uneven playing field between two contestants, it's okay for one to level the playing field through what we might call trickery or changing the rules or expectations of the game. Quick example, the David and Goliath story. It's a very uneven playing field. You have an underdog. Does the underdog play by the rules, showing up with a sword to fight hand to hand? No, he changes the rules. And it's not like David tricked anybody, but he did something unexpected to level the playing field and to best the giant Goliath. We have a number of stories like this. And so Jacob goes in to his father and he says in verse 18, my father, and he says, here am I, who art thou, my son? And he says, I am Esau, thy firstborn. I have done according as thou hast badest me. Arise, I pray thee, sit and eat of my venison, that thy soul may uh, may bless me. And so Isaac blessed him. So now Esau comes back, and Esau is so confused because he went hunting and got some meat and prepared it, and he's so excited to get this birthright blessing. He comes in, and when when Isaac says to him, uh, no, I've, I've already given the blessing, at that point he could have rescinded the blessing and ended up actually cursing Jacob, but he didn't. He could, have, he could have taken it away from Jacob and given it to Esau at that point, but he didn't. It's almost as if the Lord, through this means, he had taught Rebekah many, many years before what would happen, and it's now happened. It's almost like Isaac says, oh, I can see more clearly than you think. I'm not as blind as you think I am now. Having given the blessing, he realizes that it's, it's the Lord's will, and so he turns to Esau and says, instead, I have a different blessing for you. So now if you contrast the blessing given to Esau in verse 39 and 40 with the birthright blessing given to Isaac back in 28 and 29, you can see that even though Esau doesn't get the birthright blessing, it's still a, a pretty profound blessing. Mm -hmm. he, he gets some big promises from the Lord, but the outcome, verse 41, Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing wherewith his father blessed him. He's a little bit like Laman and Lemuel. He's waiting for the dad to die and then to kill the brother, the younger brother who has taken the blessings, seems to be the leader of the family. Again, this, this is repeating the Book of Mormon where the younger, Nephi, becomes the next leader, and the older brothers are very upset about it. Which is a repeat pattern in this Old Testament story. So look at the actual wording there in the second half of verse 41. Esau said in his heart, the days of mourning for my father are at hand, then will I slay my brother Jacob. Look at verse 42. These words of Esau, her elder son, were told to Rebekah. So what does she do? what she's always done. She's looking out for Jacob in this context, and she calls him, and she prepares him, and she says, therefore, my son, obey my voice and arise. Flee thou to Laban, my brother, to Haran. 
So go on that hundreds of mile journey back to my homeland. My brother Laban lives there and you, you've got to go and stay with him because if you stay here, Esau's going to kill you and then maybe your brother's anger will be turned away from you. So verse 46, Rebekah said to Isaac, I am weary of my life because of the daughters of Heth. If Jacob take a wife of the daughters of Heth, such as these which are of the daughters of the land, what good shall my, my life be to me? It's a repeat pattern. Now this next generation, she's saying, I, more reasons than one. I need you to go up to my brother's household, Laban, not just to save your life from Esau, but what good is it to me having, having gone through all of these struggles and trials if you marry outside of that covenant? So as we come to a close today of Isaac and Rebekah's story and their, and their struggles and their wrestles, uh, let's return back to where we began these unsung heroes and heroines in these stories, not just in the Bible, but in our own life. Let us, let us pause a little bit more and look around at the people who, who make life rich and full and through whom many of heaven's blessings come into our own life through these different people, whether it be uh, people at the, the grocery store who help you check out or your doctors and dentists and healthcare providers and law enforcement and people who serve in the military and in political uh, positions to, to pass good laws and to uphold them and relatives and people in your ward, your branch or your stake who quietly go about doing good things and, and being a source for heaven's blessings to flow into the world. God bless each of us to be more like that with more people around us is our prayer as we strive to receive and fulfill these same promises and same covenants that were given to these great people thousands of years ago, thousands of miles away. That's our prayer and we leave it in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Know that you're loved. <laughs>